Today we're talking about peace, finding inner peace, God's peace in particular. In times when our lives are stressful, in times when we are anxious, and sometimes when we're in crisis, and God's peace can be found in all of those places, especially when it's not clear to us. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we are gathered here as your people of peace, children of the God of peace, brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, your community of peace in a broken world, your agents of peace, your peacemakers, blessed, charged, and empowered to be peacemakers in our time. O oh God, send now your Holy Spirit that we might have a sense of empowerment and boldness and courage to be peacemakers in a broken and oftentimes violent world. For we make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Prince of Peace. Amen. Well, it is my great pleasure to be asked to bring the message to you today. Uh, I was delighted that John would ask me to visit uh, as part of this community now for about a year. Susan and I have been delighted to be in this place where we have found the fruits of the Spirit in so many places. This place where God has proven himself to be a source of power, a place of purpose, and of great fruit. Message text for this morning comes from Jesus' message to his disciples in the upper room. Now the disciples had seen people clearly upset with him as much as they were delighted to be around him. There were those who couldn't wait to be near him, but they were also connected and hearing many of the people who were conspiring to kill him. And in all of this confusion, they were feeling at least somewhat safe that Jesus was with them, the Good Shepherd. But it was in that upper room when Jesus came, gathered them together, celebrating that Seder, and then told them what was about to happen. And then, as you might gather, the disciples panicked because they were willing to deal with the crowds, they were willing to deal with the conspiracies, but as long as Jesus was with them, they had a sense of peace and well-being. And now he's saying, I'm leaving you. One of you are going to betray me, and I will be taken away from you. They were filled with panic, anxiety. They were scared for their lives. And Jesus said to them in the upper room that Monday Thursday, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you peace. Not, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. <laughs> the disciples were saying, Well, we're scared to death, Jesus. Jesus said, I'll tell you why. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. 
I am going to prepare a place for you. I am going. I'm not being taken away. I'm not being murdered. I'm not being assassinated. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving you in order to prepare a place for you. Not you. You and you and you. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. There's no might or I hope to or I plan to or it's, it's my idea. I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. It's a fact. It's not a plan. It's happening. It's happening tonight. I'm going to be taken from you, but I'm really, I'm leaving you. I'm going away from you so that I can do something else for you, so that we can be together. And that is why you should not let your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. Later he would say, I am the first and I am the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And I'm the living one. I was once dead, but now I am alive. And because I live, you shall live also. I am going to prepare a place for you so that you and I can be together always. So don't let your hearts be troubled. So, one of the gifts, one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. This gift comes by means of the Holy Spirit to Christians, to you and me. To people who, let's face it, can be a lot like the disciples. <laughs> really, a lot like the people on that escalator. There's a way out, but sometimes we just don't see it. But the, the gift is there. The way out is there. The way up is there. The room is there. Christ is there, waiting for us, preparing our place. We just don't see it yet, but it's there. So the difference between those fools on the escalator and where we should be is somehow knowing that there is a way off that escalator. They're not really trapped. There is a way through our crisis we're not really trapped. There's a way through our tragedies we're not really trapped. There's a way through our death we're not really trapped. There's a way through our grief, even grief of the most tragic grief. We're not trapped because there is a place in our Father's house that has been prepared for us by Jesus Christ himself so that where he is, we may be also. And somewhere between that reality and the reality where we find ourselves in some crisis, in some tension, in some deadline we're not meeting, in some grade we're not making, in some friends that we're losing, in some marriage that's falling apart, in that crisis and that promise, somewhere between the two, something has to happen. 
for us to have peace. And it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally. I know there are people, and and frankly, I'm one of them, that can help people find peace. There are therapists and pastors and, and good people who can help people find peace. There, there are ways to stop thinking negatively and destructively. They're not all Christian practices. God has given healers of all kinds the ability to help people be at peace with themselves. There are wonderful self-help books that you can buy and tapes and video programs and counselors and therapists. There are medicines. There are medicines, just as God has given healers in the physical realm, God has given healers in the emotional realm to help people be at peace with themselves. There are people that I love who are very anxious because of diseases that they have and, and they need people to help them be at peace. And there are medicines that they take and, and they find peace. There is nothing wrong with any of that. But it will not bring us that final great peace. It just They're just patchworks to help us get through a day, one day at a time. But that's not the peace of God that we're talking about. That peace, that supernatural peace, comes by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we see that in the disciples in that when they were in the upper room and they were so panicking, and Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. The disciples didn't say, oh, okay, I feel much better now. They were still scared to death. Why? Because Jesus' words were not enough. They weren't enough. And three days later, when the women came rushing from the garden saying, Jesus is alive and he's coming to meet us, the disciples didn't say, oh, great, just like Jesus said, we get it now. They didn't find peace or joy then, not on Easter morning. Even Thomas, when all of his friends said, Jesus is alive and we've seen him, he didn't have any peace. Not from those words. Not from the words of Jesus. Not from the words of the disciples, the women. It was when the Spirit came down on Pentecost and they received the gift of God's peace. Then the disciples stopped hiding in that upper room where they had been for 50 days. And then they came out and they stood in front of thousands of people and they pointed their finger at those who crucified Jesus and said, you didn't get it done. He's alive. And those of you who have hated Jesus, it's too late. He still loves you and he has conquered your hatred. And thousands of people believed their words. These cowardly, scared, anxious men became bold and courageous because there was a peace within them that was unmistakable. And that holy peace they received from the Holy Spirit, that supernatural, transforming power, would give them peace through all times while they were beaten and arrested and harassed, threatened with death, even in crucifixion and beheading. They went to their deaths in peace. And not only them, those who listened to the disciples, 
who heard their holy words of peace, those who followed them were filled with this holy peace as well. And so we hear stories through historians, historians, Roman historians, of Christians being thrown into the Colosseum and wild beasts being let loose, terrible things happening to these new, young Christians, some of them very young, and they died peaceably. And their witness made such a powerful impact that church historians today, 2,000 years later, point back to those times of martyrdom saying, those deaths of courageous martyrs were the number one influence in the growth of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. It wasn't the preaching. It wasn't the words that were spoken. It wasn't the miracles that were performed. It was the death of those martyrs dying in peace and courage and strength. That's a holy peace. Friends, you can't get that from a book or from a pastor. You can't even get that from reading the Bible yourself. That has to come from someplace else. That comes as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, that kind of peace. That's a kind of peace that doesn't come easily. It doesn't come naturally. Last month marked 35 years that I was ordained into parish ministry. I served in four churches, preached thousands of sermons. I've been in funeral homes. I've sat by bedsides in hospitals and hospice units. I've been in morgues with a young mother going to identify her dead children. I've helped an assistant uh, deputy uh, attorney general that was investigating a suicide scene clean up the room of somebody that I knew while the police were interrogating the family. I, I have seen tragedies. I've been a part of tragedies. I've been called out in the middle of the night where I didn't have my wits about me. I didn't know what I was saying or doing. And yet in so many of those cases, I have seen a peace come over people that, that has been remarkable. And it wasn't me. Or it wasn't my ministry that I had affected over the years of preaching and teaching that people had come to say, well, this is a terrible thing, but I have peace. It was something that I saw moving in that funeral home, at that bedside. I have seen it happen in people over and over again. It's that gift of the peace of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. One day I was called by a church member to go visit a woman that wasn't connected to the church in any way. It was a very sad story. She, she was in her early 30s and she had contracted ovarian cancer. She'd been living out on the West Coast and she had made a great career for herself. But to make a long story short, there was nothing more the doctors could do, and so she came home to die. Her family was there uh, in the area, and uh, I guess they were neighbors or something of the church member. Anyway, could I go over and see her? Of course I would. So I went to this hospice center uh, in Toledo. They had a beautiful, two beautiful hospice centers that were created just for the dying. They were built by the Knight family, who owned Champion Spark Plugs. 
beautiful centers, and all the people there were dying. The nurses there were all trained hospice nurses, and they were beautiful, scenic places, peace. Her name was, we'll say her name was Rebecca. I went to meet Rebecca, and she was in a great deal of pain, and they couldn't do anything at first, but eventually the nurses, wonderful nurses, found the right cocktail mix of morphine and other drugs, and she finally, finally found ease of pain. She didn't want to see me until that time. I would go back, and she just wanted me out of the room. Didn't want to talk to anybody, but eventually there was enough space because she had enough ease from her pain that she could talk. And I learned that she had a kind of new age belief, a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Wicca and a little bit of everything else. It wasn't serving her well now in her last days on earth. And she was panicked and she was anxious. She didn't really want to talk to me about Jesus, but she wanted to talk to me about life and death. And so that's where we started. We were told she wouldn't have much longer. It was March. But Rebecca didn't die in March or in April. And I found outside her window a, a beautiful young tree that had been growing. And it had blossoms on it. Some kind of a fruit tree had blossoms on it. And she loved nature. And so we started talking about that tree. And we started talking about seasons of the tree. And how is it that there seems to be a season and a plan? And we started talking about what that song God makes beautiful things, that God can make beautiful things. And that seemed to be a place that we could go safely between us. We could agree to that. And then as our conversations began to continue, she did not die during the summer, we continued talking about God's plan, that there is a God who has some kind of plan and how it's orchestrated. And she began to contemplate the sovereignty of God. She didn't want to talk about Jesus. But we were talking about the sovereignty of God, that he has a plan, and that there is a greater power as we watched that tree that had long ago lost its blossoms. Rebecca did not die in the summertime. She continued living. And she decided to take up smoking. <laughs> Why not, you know? <laughs> she was something. You know, she, she apparently made a lot of money on the West Coast, but her money didn't do her any good. And she got a lot of phone calls, but they stopped coming. She didn't have any friends around there. And I don't know what happened between her and her family, but I hardly ever saw her parents there. It was pretty much the nurses and me. And so she was glad to see me to have a conversation about what was happening to her because the tumor was growing and she knew it and she was dying. So now that she was smoking, we had to sit outside and it was getting colder and colder. And the sun was setting now behind that little tree, and it was illuminating it as the leaves began to change color. And again, we kept talking about God's plan and the sovereignty of God, and that God has a plan and a purpose. And, and how, does, how does life beyond this life happen? She believed, she sensed that that was a possibility, and now she was open to talking about Jesus and how that would make sense. It started with me sort of giving her a theology, having a philosophical kind of talk. But as the pain began to return and she sensed that her time was getting shorter, 
The days were literally becoming shorter, the shadows becoming longer, the leaves falling off of that tree. It became an almost kind of time clock. And Rebecca and I began talking about the end of her life. And you know what? She wasn't panicked anymore. She wasn't afraid anymore. There wasn't an anxiety. I mean, she didn't want to die. But there was a peace about her. Because she believed that there was a God, and there was a plan, and now she was beginning to contemplate the truth that that plan included everlasting life that was made possible through Jesus Christ. Well, I shouldn't go on much further. Let me end by just saying that Rebecca did die shortly after the last leaf from that tree fell. It was quite remarkable. And she died in peace. And she died with peace. And she died in the arms of Jesus Christ. Friends, I have seen this happen over and over and over again to young people and old people. I've seen it happen to a young couple that I was with, tried to have children, finally conceived a child that did not miscarry, and carried twin boys to the age where they were just about six months in utero. And in, back in Wisconsin, where we were living then, they didn't have much of a neonatal unit. She lost the boys, but they were still alive. I held those boys in my hands while the couple held each other. And we waited. And there was peace in that room. Terrible grief. Terrible grief. But there was great peace in that room. Friends, I have seen it in the morgue in a hospital. I have seen Christ's peace come. And my guess is that if you have Christian friends and family, you've seen it too. In times of great sadness, where there was a kind of peace that came. I hope that you have seen it. I hope that you have experienced it. And if you have not, it's not something that you have to learn. You don't have to know the Bible very well. You don't have to come to church a lot. This is a gift that God will give you freely by his Holy Spirit. In many ways, it's like a a two-year-old. You know, A little girl is playing and happy, and one Saturday night, she sees Mommy putting on her coat, picking up her purse, and Daddy putting on his coat and picking up the car keys, and she knows what's going to happen. And what happens? (laughs) She starts crying. I mean, she starts wailing. Don't go, don't go, don't go. There's nothing wrong with this two-year-old. That's perfectly normal. Why? Because in that little two-year-old's mind, she believes that mommy and daddy are leaving her. Period. Mommy and daddy are leaving. A little two-year-old does not yet have the complexity of thought to understand that people come and go. And so when mommy says, don't cry, honey, we'll be back later, they have no idea what later means. They haven't developed that ability. Those are real tears, real grief. I'm losing you. Same thing, little boys playing with his favorite toys, having a great time, and and daddy says, come on, it's time for bed, and he starts crying. He's not manipulating daddy, he's not a brat. 
He's crying because he's having a good time, and in his little mind, he really believes he'll never have this good time again. Well, and Daddy says, well, we'll get the toy out tomorrow. That means nothing to the little two-year-old. He's losing this happiness. You know, in a lot of ways, that's what happens to us. We, we have not matured in our understanding about our grief and our anxiety and our belief in God. So the disciples were like the two-year-old little boy, the two-year-old little girl. When Jesus said, I'm leaving you, they said, what do you mean you're leaving me? And it didn't matter that Jesus said, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's like mommy and daddy saying to the two-year-old, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> we'll be back tonight. You'll be in bed, but we'll see you in the morning. That means nothing. All they know is you're leaving. And a lot of us, in our time of stress and anxiety, are sort of like those two-year-olds, sort of like the people in the escalator. We don't see that there is something else, there is another way, that there is something more. And, and indeed, yes, my mother is gone, she's dead, I saw her die, I saw her in the funeral home, and it's appropriate to grieve, but it's also possible to have peace if what? If, unlike that two-year-old, I have conviction that there is something more out there. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And I have gone to prepare a place for your mother. And if I go and prepare a place for your mother, she will be with me and I will be with her. And one day I'll prepare a place for you. And then where I am, you will be and you will be with my mother because you will be with me. So you will be with your mother again. If I really believe that, I still miss her. I'm still sad that she's gone. But there isn't that anxiety that I've lost her forever. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. But all of this wisdom and all of this insight and all of this maturity really can't happen without the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of peace. So what do we do? We, we do what we can. We, we, uh, we, t we take some medicines and we try to feel better. We, we go to the therapist. We read books. Some people join cult groups that have all the answers. There's lots of people who, who look for Christian miracle workers that can somehow, I, I've been called on to do that. They didn't want to talk about Jesus. They didn't want to talk about life after death. They just wanted to know, did I have the power to stop this disease? And I said, I, I will pray, and I believe that Jesus can heal you, but his plan may not be for you to be miraculously healed. Are you willing to accept whatever plan? Oh, no, get out of here then. I want somebody who's going to come in here and heal me, period. So we have these kind of false fruits that can sometimes even be Christianized. So, so we have this dead tree that our pastor murdered a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting over here when he took out that saw. I thought, he's not going to saw that perfectly nice tree, is he? And I, I told John, I said, you know, when you cut that tree, there was almost this kind of, <gasps> and uh, I'm not surprised that Tim had to go looking for it in the dumpster. So we'll hang a, a fake fruit here, along with this other fake fruit on this dying tree, which reminds us that 
that we can find available to us all kinds of things that will try to imitate the peace of God. And they might be helpful, but they're not the peace of God. The Apostle Paul gives us a direction, a more appropriate direction. Writing to the church at Colossia, he says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor, God's right hand. Set your sights on the new life in Christ, where God, in Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be redirected to a place of peace. Now, when I was ordained in 1979, I was ordained by the Presbyterian Church. I'd grown up Presbyterian. My, my Presbyterian roots go back to the 1600s in Scotland. We have a relative, John Witherspoon, the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence, president of Princeton University. John Brown, the martyr, his direct descendant. I mean, we Presbyterians go back a long way and are proud of that. But in 1979, the Presbyterian Church decided that its focus was going to be peacemaking. Peacemaking the believer's calling. And that was the year I was ordained, 1979. We were told that that was going to be our focus. A lot of good people, a lot of long committee meetings. Pastors were called on to raise a lot of money for this, and that money was distributed to a lot of good causes, fed a lot of mouths, missionaries all over the world, a lot of justice causes for people that had no other source of justice, peace. I'm sure there's a lot of peacemaking that went on with all those efforts. But for all that work, I look back now 35 years, and to tell you the truth, I don't think we brought the peace of God, this peace of God from above, to anybody. I hope that we did, but I didn't see it. At the same time, 1978, the year before, the Presbyterian Church made a, they called an authoritative interpretation about homosexuality. I'm not talking about that. We're not going there. They said, oh, we're against it. Gave all these reasons why we shouldn't be ordaining homosexual people. And throughout my entire 35-year ministry, every year we fought about that. We didn't talk a whole lot about the peace of Christ. We didn't talk about the working of the Holy Spirit. We didn't really talk that much about peacemaking. We argued about homosexuality. Until two months ago, when we finally decided not only will we ordain gays people, but we will also marry gay people as Presbyterians. And I'm quite certain that if it goes the way that it always goes, by next year we will be required, every pastor will be disciplined 
If we don't follow those mandates, I don't want to talk about that issue. Obviously, I'm here <laughs> and not there. A lot of my friends who've served 35 and 40 years are, do not have the peace of Christ right now because they tried, as I once did, to discuss and persuade and have non-emotional conversations about this issue only to find that we were called homophobic by our Christian brothers and sisters and worse. So there's no peace in the Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church or the Anglican Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, mainline Christianity, which just Jesse Falwell once called sideline, is now being called flatline Protestantism. When I was ordained 39, five years ago, the Presbyterian Church had over three million members. Today we have just barely over a million. The Presbyterian Church, the average church size is less than 100 members. The average worshiping congregation is less than 50. You know, if the peace of Christ was moving through that denomination, if there was real peacemaking in this world where kindergartners are shot up and, and bombs are being exploded and airplanes being shot down, if there was a place where there was real peacemaking and the fruits of the Spirit were available, those places would be packed in America today. Instead, they're closing churches and turning them into community art centers and some of them into bars in New York City. The fruits of the Spirit bring life, and they're so attractive. False fruit and false beliefs are the result of being cut off from Christ, cut off from the roots, cut off from the truth, cut off from the Holy Spirit, and you've got to go looking for those churches in the dumpster. I'm not here to point fingers. I'm here perhaps to mourn a little bit with you over something that was great at one time and is no longer. But let's focus where God wants us to focus. Let me offer you three ways by which Paul's admonition to the Colossians to put your head forward in a place and begin to understand how. I'll take a look to the book of Philippians where the Apostle Paul is in prison and he's waiting his execution and yet listen to the peace of Christ that flows out of his pen in this beautiful letter to the church at Philippi do not be anxious about anything he's in chains he's in house prison he's waiting his beheading and he says do not be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about the such things. 
Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. Three things. First, the peace of Christ comes as you are thankful. Do not be anxious about anything, he says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, be thankful. You know, you can't be anxious and thankful at the same time. You can't be depressed and thankful. You can't be worried and thankful at the same time. <laughs> I know you think you can multitask and go back and forth. Uh, maybe you could do that, but you can't do it at the same time. You are either thankful or you are worried. You are either thankful or you are anxious. You can't be both at the same time. Be thankful and you will find peace. I have found that the turmoil that keeps me from sleeping can be dissipated completely is while I'm laying in bed, wringing my hands, resentful, anxious, worried. If I set that aside and start like that simple song we learned as children, count your blessings one by one. If I can do that, I find myself falling to sleep with, with a great peace. Try it. When you are very anxious about something, be thankful. Count your blessings. Count, and they may be small blessings. You may have something really, really terrible happening. I know what it's like to be unemployed. I know what it's like to not have enough money. I know what it's like to watch somebody I love slowly dying. I'm not discounting that. I'm not saying anything will make it go away. But if you want to find peace in that situation, start counting the blessings that you are thankful for. How God has blessed you. And while you're doing that, go ahead and pray to God. Paul says, be thankful and pray to God. Make your petition. Make a list of things that you would like God to do. When you do that out of thanksgiving... You'll find peace coming as opposed to, God, help me get out of this situation. Lord, do something about him. That, that's not the kind of petition we're talking about. We're talking about a sense of thanksgiving. A, a thanksgiving of, of how blessed our life has been. And then out of that thanksgiving saying, Lord, you have blessed me in so many ways. I would like to ask you for even more. Can you see how that might be a different kind of prayer of petitions? Asking for similar things, but from a different place. The Apostle Paul says your peace will come as you pray out of thanksgiving. Pray for something out of thanksgiving. And God will guard your heart. This, the Greek word here for guard, uh, I don't think it's strong enough in English. Guard, it's a military word. God will guard your heart. 
You know, like the Secret Service guards the president. They have, they have a bulletproof limousine, and they have people running alongside the president. Police cars in front, police cars in back. They have snipers on the roof. They have people ahead of him waiting for the president to arrive, checking everything out. God will guard your heart that way. And you know, when, you're, when you feel really guarded, that you have a shepherd who is watching over you, keeping the wolves at bay, there is some peace that comes from that. God will guard your heart. I think about an army, an entire army, thousands of men can go to bed at night and sleep on the front lines if they have a few centuries that they trust watching out for them. God will guard your heart so that you can sleep, so that you can be at peace, so that you can begin to focus on the trials and the tragedies and the challenges that are happening that might give you stress, but you know that God has got everything under control around you. He will guard your heart. So give thanksgiving and think differently. Think differently. Make a deliberate effort to think deliberately. Those kooks on the escalator weren't thinking. Paul says to Philippians, think. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Think about these things. Don't be like the two-year-old that says, I don't know any better. I don't know any differently. You're not a two-year-old anymore. Jesus Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. Think about that. What is that place? Think about Jesus dying on the cross, raised from the dead, 2,000 years of proclamation of his resurrection is true for you today. Think about these things. Dr. D. James Kennedy died a couple of years ago, a great pastor, and he came up with a, a curriculum called Evangelism Explosion. I don't know, maybe some of you have studied that. It, it was basically a simple way of helping people talk to complete strangers about Jesus. You're sitting on an airplane, how do you do that? How do you share your faith with somebody sitting on an airplane or somebody in the office? And he said, what you do is you start with a question, an engaging question. And the question that Dr. Kennedy came up with was, if you were to die today, if you were to die today, how certain would you be that you would go to heaven? That's, that's, that's where you begin. That was the question. Millions of people have been asked that question. Millions of conversations were launched with that question. If you were to die today, how sure would you be that you'd go to heaven? And Dr. Kennedy reported that an amazing number of Christians, people who believed in Jesus, would say 40, 50 percent, I guess, 60. The right answer is 100 percent. I am absolutely convinced that I'm going to heaven. The people who can't answer that question are people who aren't thinking. They still have that two-year-old mind of saying, well, you know, I did do this bad thing once, and I guess you're saying that Jesus can't forgive that. Well, you know, I, I haven't gone to church very much, 
and Jesus can't overlook that? The grace of Jesus is somehow limited by something that you did? Is that what you're saying? Well, no. When you think about it, it's really stupid. It's escalator thinking. Jesus can forgive you of everything that you have done, and there is no barrier. What can keep us from the love of God? Look at that list in Romans 8. There is nothing in all of creation that can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Period. Romans 8.31. Check it out. Nothing. 100%. If you are 100% certain that when you die, you will go to heaven, that should change everything else before that time comes, shouldn't it? Almost like, you know, I've got some money problems, but I have this lottery ticket. And, you know, on TV, they had all the numbers on that lottery ticket were on the TV. You know what? I still may have money problems today, but tomorrow I'm not. Because I just won the lottery. You have won the life lottery towards everlasting life in Jesus Christ. 100% in my Father's house, there are many rooms... And I go to prepare a place for you so that you may be also. Think about that. I am going to Jesus. My mom is going to be with Jesus. In the end, all of my problems will pass away. But in the end, I am going to be with Jesus forever. Think about these things. Think about the beauty of Jesus. Think about the mission of this church. Think about the great Christians that you have known. Think about the people who have been maybe ordinary people who lived ordinary lives in some ways, but they had the peace of God in them, and they brought the best out of other people. Think about those people while you deal with that jerk in the next cubicle at the office. <laughs> I mean, that guy's not going to change. The people that are gossiping about you aren't going to stop gossiping about you. But if you are thankful and thinking about higher things, they will not have the effect of disturbing that beautiful gift of peace that God has given you. Finally, put into action. Whatever you have learned and received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have learned and received from me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. You know, a thankful, confident, thoughtful Christian won't waste their time holding a grudge against somebody else. It's impractical. Why, why would you do that? If you are thankful and thoughtful, hold, holding a grudge just doesn't make sense. A thankful, confident, thoughtful Christian won't fret and worry about life's challenges or obstacles. It's irrational. If I am at peace with God, who cares what she's telling other people about me? Instead, Christians who think about whatever is true begin doing the right thing. They begin becoming trustworthy people. Christians who think pure thoughts begin to live moral lives. What is a source of anxiety? 
immorality. What is the source of peace? Pure living. Break your marriage vows, commit adultery, anxiety follows. Be faithful to your husband and wife, peace is the result. Live a pure life, think a pure life, have a pure life. That leads to peace, doesn't it? Christians who think about whatever is right, do the right thing. Christians who have pure thoughts, have moral lives. Christians who think admirable thoughts, find themselves admired by other people and sought by other people. You know, I I have performed hundreds of funerals. And sometimes it amazes me that a very wealthy, powerful person may not have a very large funeral, but I I have attended funerals, led funerals where it was a person of very modest means, but they were such a great person that the church was packed when they died. People had to come out and give testimony to the great things that that person did in the living of their ordinary life because they had that quality about their life that attracted people. Their changed life changed others. Psychiatrist M. Scott Peck wrote a book a long time ago, sold millions of copies, called Road Less Traveled. I'd like to close with a story that he told about a monastery that was falling apart. Only had seven monks left in it. The monastery roof was falling in. Nobody came to visit them. Nobody gave money to support them anymore. And the monks were always fighting among themselves. It was an anxious place, a bitter place. It was pretty much a faithless place. So they they went through the rituals, but their heart wasn't in their worship. One day, the abbot, the father abbot, decided he had to do something. And he knew that there was a rabbi who lived in a little hut out in the woods. And he could see when the rabbi was visiting his hut by the smoke coming out. So one day, the father abbot, seeing the smoke, went out to the rabbi and came in and warmly received. He said, Brother, our monastery is falling apart. We have no money. The place is in shambles. Nobody respects us. Nobody wants to worship with us. We're fighting. We're gossiping with each other. There's just no peace at all. There's no joy. The rabbi said, I understand completely, brother. My synagogue is not much different. Times have really changed, haven't they? And they commiserated, and they drank some tea. And finally the abbot said, could you just give me some advice? I I came out here for some advice. Do you have any ideas? And the rabbi said, "I, I I have no advice for you. But I can tell you one thing. One of you is the Messiah. Now, Father Abbot didn't know what that meant. He thought maybe he was a metaphor or something. He thought he'd go back and figure it out. The monks came out anxiously. Father Abbot, Father Abbot, what did the rabbi say? Did he have an answer? And he said, no, he has the same problems we do. But he did say something strange. He said that one of us was the Messiah. That wasn't very helpful, but it did get them thinking, and pretty soon they began to wonder if maybe the rabbi had a vision from God that one of them was the Messiah. I mean, the Messiah has been hidden from others before, 
What if it was happening again? Maybe Christ has come and maybe he's in, uh, in the Father Abbot. He's a wise man. And maybe he is the Messiah that's hiding among us. Or maybe it's Brother Stephen. He has a hot temper, but, you know, he's usually right about things in an uncanny way. Or maybe it's Brother Andrew. He seems so lazy, but he's also very meditative, and he seems to be spending a lot of time with God. Maybe, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe it's true. And so they thought of each other that way, even themselves, pondering if they were the Messiah, that they hadn't yet come to full realization. Well, they didn't really believe it, but they began to change the way they treated each other because in the off chance that that person was the Messiah, they wanted to be kind to them. They wanted to be respectful of them. They quit bickering and gossiping about each other, and pretty soon they found that they had a, a real brotherhood among the place. And a new peace began to emerge, which livened their worship and their singing, and they found themselves working harder, now, this monastery was in a beautiful park just outside the city, and people in the city used to come and have picnics and play there. And they always avoided the monastery because it was such a ruinous place in lots of ways. But now the brother monks began to move out and greet people because they were feeling so good about themselves. They began to want to meet other people, and people were amazed at how friendly and, and people who had troubles could start to talk to these monks about their problems, and they found a great peace from them. And pretty soon, some of the young men decided that this was so attractive that they wanted to be a part of it themselves. Now people were joining the monastery, and now people were giving money to the monastery, and people wanted to worship with these monks because there was such joy and vitality, because they believed that Christ was among them. Friends, when the Holy Spirit comes, and brings the gift of peace, it changes a person that changes their family, it changes their congregation, and they begin to bear all kinds of fruit. And we know what happens when people choose to cut themselves off and focus on themselves and only on their problems and only on their fears. It's only death. I'd like to close today with a prayer that many of you know, at least part of it. Some of you have memorized it and say it every day. It was written by one of America's greatest theologians of the last century. And it, I believe it focuses on that scripture, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have heard, learned, received from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and then the God of peace will be with you. This prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr is called the Serenity Prayer. What I find is that many people don't know is that the prayer is longer than the prayer most of us know. We know the part, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. But look at the rest of the prayer. Living, 
one day at a time. Some of you know that wisdom. Friends of Bill know that wisdom. Enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, trusting that he will make all things right. Of course, that's making. Christ will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with Jesus forever in the next. Look at those verbs. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the path to peace, taking the sinful world as Jesus did, as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make things right. I would like to invite the congregation to stand as our band prepares to close our service. And I would like you, if you would, uh, could we have the, the prayer on the screen? If we could say it together. Not working. Okay. Then we'll make it our closing prayer. Let us pray. O God and Heavenly Father, grant us all the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things that we can change, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, and accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that, I, that we may all be reasonably happy in this life and that we may be supremely happy with Jesus forever in the next. Amen. Amen.